Thanks for joining me. Really appreciate it. My name is Adam Keller, and this is Shop Talk, our Thursday morning episode. We're producing every week with a focus on labor education, history, and training. And today it's Thursday, September 7th, and we're broadcasting live from Spice Radio Studio in the heart of the Tennessee Valley in Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and Facebook and is released on your favorite podcasting platform in the coming days. Today on the show, we're talking labor history. What happened in September in the history of our working class with, of course, an emphasis on the Southern working class. So looking forward to it. I maybe got carried away this month. There were just so many cool stories that I didn't know what to take out. So uh, buckle up, folks. But before we get into that, I do want to take a moment to thank our very first sponsor for Shop Talk, At the Valley Labor Report, we are big fans of Labor Notes. Labor Notes is a media and organizing project that since 1979 has been the voice of union activists who want to put the movement back in the labor movement. Through their magazine, website, books, conferences, and workshops, Labor Notes promotes organizing, aggressive strategies to fight concessions, alliances with worker centers, and unions that are run by their members. Labor Notes is also a network of rank-and-file members, local union leaders, and labor activists who know the the labor movement is worth fighting for. They encourage connections between workers in different unions, worker centers, communities, industries, and countries to strengthen the movement from the bottom up. With 40 years of movement building behind them, Labor Notes exists as a resource for leaders and union members who want to chart a new course for the labor movement. At the Valley Labor Report, we are proud subscribers and supporters, and we encourage our listeners to do the same. Go to labornotes.org to find out more. So, uh, like I said, today is a labor history episode. We are going to talk about what happened this month in labor history and the long fight for justice. And I compiled this information from a couple different sources. Uh, Typically, I have been using Planning to Change the World, a plan book for social justice educators. However, that is now out of date. They did not put out a 2023-24 school year edition of that. Um, So really hope the Education for Liberation Network considers putting that back out. I thought it was a cool resource. So definitely a shout out to the Zen Education Project. I really recommend their This Day in History post on social media, hashtag TDIH, or on their website. That's been a great resource. And another great resource I found is the Labor Tribune. 
the Labor Tribune of St. Louis and Southern Illinois, and you can find that at labortribune.com. That was certainly a helpful source. And finally, thanks to Working Class History and their archives as well. I won't pretend that this is an exhaustive list of Working Class History anniversaries in September, but we'll mention quite a few important and interesting events in the history of the South, our labor movement, and our class, including quite a few working class martyrs as well as milestones in the civil rights struggle. And while obviously I'm particularly interested in Alabama and our neighbors, I'll mention quite a few interesting events from outside the South today. So let's get started. September 1st. On September 1st, 1946, sugar workers on 33 of Hawaii's 34 plantations went on strike, which lasted almost three months and led to substantial improvements in pay, housing, and working conditions. The strike, led by the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union, ILWU, included around 76,000 sugar plantation workers and their families, and largely succeeded because workers across the islands and from many different ethnic groups organized together. I found that really interesting, and uh, do check out Zen Education Project for more information about that historic strike. Next, the African-American community of Clinton, Tennessee, had fought since 1947 for the right to a high school education. The local citizens were represented by African-American attorneys Z. Alexander Luby, Avon N. Williams, Carl A. Cowan, and Thurgood Marshall. Following Brown v. Board of Education, a federal judge ordered Clinton High School to desegregate with, quote, all deliberate speed in the fall of 1956. The Clinton 12, the first black students to attend Clinton High School, registered and attended school for one day without incident in late August of 1956. However, on September 1st, the White Citizens Council and Klan launched full-scale rioting in Clinton. Cars were overturned, windows smashed, and black citizens were threatened. A couple months later, on December 4, 1956, a white minister organized to support the Clinton 12. After escorting the students to school, he was severely beaten by a white mob. The, the principal closed the school until December 10th when a federal judge reaffirmed his court injunction forbidding anyone from interfering with the integration process. The students attended the Highlander Center in December of 1956, where they met Rosa Parks. Two years later, the school was destroyed by dynamite. September 1, 1965, the Klan raided a family home in Haneyville, Alabama. It was late in the evening on September 1, 1965, when a heavily armed gang of Ku Klux Klan members descended on the family home of community organizer and activist Patty Mae McDonald. McDonald ran a freedom library, and her reputation for being involved in the movement made her home a target. While this type of racial violence was not new to the citizens of Haneyville, the civil rights movement had seriously increased its occurrence. Discovering Patty Mae McDonald supported the movement, she and her family had been the targets of, of harassing phone calls and anonymous death threats that were typical of the time. It's still astounding to me that despite her home being despite her being home with her husband and ten kids, nobody was killed. And Freedom Libraries were part of the Freedom Summer Project a project designed to aid in the effort to secure voting rights and other services for African Americans in Mississippi during the Civil Rights era. 
housed in churches, old buildings, and other facilities. The Freedom Libraries provided library services and liter literary, literary guidance for many African Americans, some who had never had access to libraries before the project. A couple of other quick hits on September 1st. Uh, in, back in 1893, the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, Iron Shipbuilders, Blacksmiths, Forgers, and Helpers was founded at a meeting in Chicago, the product of two separate brotherhoods created over the previous 13 years. In 1894, on September 1st, Congress declared Labor Day a national holiday. Of course, many of you may know that in most countries, Labor Day is celebrated on May 1st. International Workers' Day, or May Day. The U.S. government, seeking to alienate workers from the militant wing of the labor movement and erase the memory of the Haymarket martyrs, picked the first Monday in September. Me, personally, I'll take two Labor Days. How about that? September 1st, 2003, 20 years ago, the AFL-CIO created Working America, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization designed to build alliances among non-union working people. And I'm curious if listeners have any thoughts about Working America 20 years in. On September 2nd, 1921, mine owners bombed West Virginia strikers by plane using homemade bombs filled with nails and metal fragments. More on that in a moment. September 2nd, 1966 was supposed to be the first day of school, but at the last minute, the Grenada, Mississippi School Board postponed it for 10 days rather than open the doors to the 450 African-American students who had registered to attend the two white schools. The board claimed the delay was due to paperwork. Even though the school hadn't opened, the white high school played its first football game of the season. Some of the African-American students tried to attend the game. They were beaten and their car windows were smashed with baseball bats. During the next 10 days before school opens, the white power structure wages a fierce campaign to convince black parents not to send their children to the white schools. Threatened by loss of jobs and evictions by white landlords and fearing for the safety of their children, around 200 of the 450 kids who had registered for the white schools are withdrawn and re-registered at the black schools. Meanwhile, the number of whites showing up at the square to harass and attack the night marches steadily increased as the first day of school drew near. Violence against those active in the movement also increased. On September 3rd, 1891, African-American cotton pickers organized and went on strike in Lee County, Arkansas against miserably low wages and other injustices, including a grower's arrangement with local law enforcement to round up blacks on vagrancy charges then forced them to work off their fines on select plantations. Just absolutely egregious. Also September 3rd, but in 1991, 25 workers died, unable to escape a fire at the Imperial Poultry Processing Plant in Hamlet, North Carolina. Managers had locked fire doors to prevent the theft of chicken nuggets. The plant had operated for 11 years without a single safety inspection. And yeah, you heard me right. So let's dive a little deeper. An article published in Scalawag magazine described the preventable tra tragedy. Hydraulic fluid sprayed out of a disconnected hose in the town's Imperial Foods chicken processing plant and fire erupted. Some of the doors were locked from the outside. 
The loading dock was occupied by a truck, and with no pre-planned exit strategy, workers in the back rooms never stood a chance. Apathetic leadership at the local level and a corporation's desire to capitalize, literally, on American consumers' hunger for cheap food were what set the stage for this fire and other workplace accidents. A Smithsonian article summarizes and reviews the arguments put forth by Professor Bryant Simon in his 2017 book, The Hamlet Fire, A Tragic Story of Cheap Food, Cheap Government, and Cheap Lives. Simon examines how systems at work, both at, at Imperial and in the wider food production industry, like deregulation, either by law or lack of enforcement, a growing demand for cheap labor, a culture of silence and intimidation among workers and management, and changes to the meat industry itself with its shift in the 1980s to highly processed, mass-produced chicken products made at the plant were integral to the conflagration. And all of these elements, Simon argues, fit into a larger pattern of American society depreciating workers' lives while elevating and prioritizing the notion of cheap in the consumer marketplace. Just as the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory employed mostly vulnerable, financially insecure immigrant women and girls, the Hamlet Fire's victims were the underprivileged as well. Simon doesn't shy away from the intrinsic role that race, class, and gender played in the tragedy. Those who made decisions about imperial safety protocols, the city, state, and federal officials, were removed from the experiences of the workers impacted by them. Of the 25 who died in the fire, 12 were African-American and 18 were women, many of whom were single mothers. And I found that story to just be absolutely tragic and, and completely wild, uh, and it was not one that I was familiar with before doing this research. Now, September 4th was, of course, Labor Day, and Labor Day, besides being a uh, made-up holiday to distract us from May Day, it does honor the social and economic achievements of American workers and pay tribute to the contributions that workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and well-being of the country. And in classic American fashion, rather than a remembrance of the sacrifices of organized workers who fought and died to advance our rights, the holiday is now mostly an excuse to shop for appliances and get drunk by the pool. September 4th, 1949 more than 140 attendees at a benefit for a civil rights group are injured in the Peekskill riots in Peekskill, New York. The victims were among the 20,000 people leaving a concert featuring African-American Paul Robeson, well known for his strong pro-unionism, civil rights activism, and left-wing affiliations. The Reconstruction-era Clinton Massacre began on September 4, 1875 in the small town of Clinton, Mississippi, at a Republican rally to introduce the party's candidates who were running for political office in the upcoming November elections. The immediate death toll included five African Americans and three white men. Over the next several days, an estimated 50 African Americans were killed. Over 1,500 black Republicans and their families gathered on the grounds of the former Moss Hill Plantation for a barbecue and political rally. Approximately 100 whites also attended, including a few Democrats from the nearby town of Raymond. While a Republican was giving a speech, shots were fired. When the gunfire ended, a total of five African Americans, including two children, and the three white men were dead, 
nearly and nearly 30 others were wounded. The following days were marked by violence and bloodshed as the white mob indiscriminately shot and killed nearly 50 African Americans in Clinton and the surrounding area. In addition, the white mob murdered a white school teacher working in the African American community. <clears throat> Although Governor Ames requested federal troops to assist in restoring order, President Ulysses Grant denied the request on September 14th and adopted a policy of non-intervention, leaving Ames and the local black and white Republicans without protection. Earlier I mentioned the minor battles in West Virginia. September 4th marks the end of the fighting at the Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921, which was perhaps the largest and most explicit example of class war in U.S. history. It was fought over the course of five days in 1921 by 10,000 coal miners. The coal miners were, were rebelling against inhumane conditions in the West Virginia coal fields. The region led the nation in mine fatalities, and the coal companies controlled almost every aspect of mining families' lives. The miners had attempted to unionize for decades, but were constantly blocked by a corrupt political system, brutal intimidation for organizers, and other forms of harassment such as blacklisting, where union sympathizers were barred from working in the region. These struggles all came to a head when the United Mine Workers of America, UMWA, went on a national strike in 1919. The southern coal fields of West Virginia at this time were the only major coal-producing region that was non-union. The continued production in the region during the strike seriously undercut the UMWA's position. After the national strike was resolved, the UMWA set their sights on the problematic region. This began two years of determined efforts on the miners' part to unionize these fields. The first efforts were focused on Logan County. The union organizers met stiff resistance from the county sheriff, Don Chafin, who was in the employment of coal operators. Chafin used intimidation, beatings, and even murder to keep the union out. In 1920, the campaign shifted to Mingo County, during which a notable event was the Maitwan Massacre on May 19, 1920. During this, the town sheriff Sid Hatfield sided with the miners in a gunfight against detectives from the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. This resulted in seven detectives being killed along with the mayor of the town. Hatfield became a hero to the miners, but he himself was gunned down on August 7, 1921, which further inflamed the situation. After Hatfield's murder, the miners began planning a march to Mingo County via Logan County. They started marching on August 24th, armed with high-powered rifles and machine guns. Meanwhile, Don Chafin had his 3,000-person army dig in along roughly 10 miles of the ridge line around Blair Mountain. The miners reached Blair Mountain on August 29th, and the first fighting started on August 31st. The battle was only halted when three regiments of federal troops were sent to the area, and both sides laid down their arms peaceably. Recent archaeological work has shown that the miners, many of whom were veterans of the recent World War I, were able to form an effective military strategy. They gained the ridge at one location and established a standard military operation that included a command center, a rear guard, and a perimeter. From the archaeological pattern, there was a heavy firefight at this location. The miners claim they broke through in this area, but more ar archaeological evidence is needed to prove or disprove this claim. 
Maybe even more important than the size of the battle or its ferocity is how the battle came to be. This is because the miners were from a wide range of backgrounds. Blacks who had moved from the south, white settler descendants, and immigrants from a large amount of European countries. Most of the time when class solidarity is discussed, it is thought of it thought of in a way where class consciousness supersedes or, or wipes away other forms of consciousness such as racial or ethnic ones. However, when one digs into the history of this battle, it's obvious that class solidarity did not erase racial or ethnic issues. Instead, union organizers and officials worked diligently to address the civil struggles of black miners. For instance, black miners served in a wide range of union political positions, and if the union would not have recognized this and other fundamental concerns of black civil struggles, they would have had a much harder time uniting with black miners. This does not mean that black miners did not still face significant discrimination, but there was a large amount of progress as many racial lines were crossed. This was true during the battle. One of the earliest committees formed to prepare for the march had three officers, one black, one U.S.-born white, and one Italian immigrant. Throughout the campaign, black miners served as commanders and logistics officers. There's even one instance of a black miner leading a troop of fighters to the front. The majority of black soldiers in World War I were not even allowed to be in combat, and so the fact that they were armed and leading white troops at Blair Mountain is an important historical mi milestone. The same dynamics were at play with the many different immigrant groups. The UMWA was able to assimilate them to a substantial degree, which was something these groups often faced barriers to in their new life in America. The Union also offered them positions of authority and respect as Union officers. In this way and more, the miners wove the interests and concerns of immigrant families into their struggles. All of this enabled the miners at the Battle of Blair Mountain to enact a degree of solidarity that was so strong it took three regiments of federal troops to stop it. This did not occur through simple class solidarity. Instead, the everyday interests of white, black, and immigrant miners were woven in to the larger struggle. The true lesson of Blair Mountain is that when people come together in a way that genuinely attempts to integrate different struggles, one of the most powerful social forces for change can be formed. When poor white, black, and immigrant people work together, that is what truly scares people in power. As stated earlier, this mix of racial, ethnic, and class solidarities was not perfect, but it was something unique for the time, and its effect can be best summed up by a white miner who fought in the battle. Quote, I call it a darn solid mess of different colors and tribes, blended together, woven together, bound, interlocked, tongued and grooved together in one body. And this excerpt was from Brandon Nita and was hosted on the Zen Education Project. Turning to September 5th, 1934, 10,000 angry textile strikers fighting for better wages and working conditions besieged a factory in Fall River, Massachusetts, where 300 strike breakers were working. The scabs were rescued by police using tear gas and pistols on the strikers. September 5, 1946, a general strike began across the U.S. maritime industry, stopping all shipping. The strikers were objecting to the government's post-war National Wage Stabilization Board order that reduced pay increases negotiated by maritime unions. 
On September 5, 1917, in 48 coordinated raids across the country, in a practice later known as the Palmer Raids, federal, federal agents seized records, destroyed equipment, destroyed books, and arrested hundreds of activists involved with the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. Among the arrested was William Big Bill Haywood, a leader of the IWW, for the, quote, crimes of labor and obstructing the war. Arrested later in the month as part of the same raids was Ben Fletcher, one of the leaders of IWW Local 8, the longest-lasting interracial union of the World War I era. The Palmer raids were part of a long trajectory of attacks on labor organizing and the black freedom struggle, as Ursula Wolf Rocca explains in More Than McCarthyism, the attack on activism students don't learn about from their textbooks. She stated, quote, The textbook periodization of anti-communist repression, which posits the Red Scare in the years following World War I and the second Red Scare in the late 1940s and early 1950s, erases the continuity and pervasiveness of anti-communist politics and policies throughout the 20th century. It suggests that to students that anti-communist political repression was exceptional, tightly bound into two discrete decades. But between the Palmer Raids and McCarthy, there was the Fish Committee and the Dyes Committee, the House Committee on Un-American Activities. And after McCarthy, there was COINTELPRO. Indeed, anti-communist persecution targeted the same people in more than one era. On September 6, 1973, 50 years ago, Tony Boyle, former president of the United Mine Workers, was charged with murder in the 1969 deaths of former UMWA rival Joseph A. Yablonski and his wife and daughter. Truly an ugly chapter in our movement's history. On September 7, 1916, federal employees win the right to receive workers' compensation insurance coverage. September 8th is International Literacy Day, which gives children and communities a chance to rediscover the joys of reading while raising awareness about those who without access to formal education. Back in 1909, on September 8th, employers give in to the demands of thousands of wobbly-led striking railroad car production workers in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, agreeing to improved working conditions, 15% hike in wages, and the elimination of a pool system that gave foremen control over each worker's pay. September 8, 1965, the United Farm Workers Union begins its historic national grape boycott and strike in Delano, California. On September 9, 1924, 16 striking Filipino sugar workers in Hawaii were killed by the police. Four police died as well. Many of the surviving strikers were jailed, then deported. Also on September 9th, but in 1973, United Auto Workers President Leonard Woodcock is named in President Richard Nixon's, quote, enemies list a White House compilation of Americans Nixon regarded as major political opponents. Another dozen union presidents were added later. The existence of the list was revealed during Senate Watergate committee hearings. September 10, 1897, in Pennsylvania, Polish, Lithuanian, and Slovak miners were gunned down by the Latimer Mines sheriff deputies. Nineteen were killed, more than 50 wounded, during a peaceful march from Hazleton to Latimer, some 3,000 were marching for collective bargaining 
and civil liberty and in protest of extremely dangerous working conditions, unpaid overtime, and the company store. The next day, September 11, 1897, same year, some 75,000 coal miners in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia ended a 10-week strike after winning the eight-hour day, semi-monthly pay, and the abolition of overpriced company-owned stores where they were, had been forced to shop. Remember the song 16 Tons by coal miner's son Merle Travis, in which there's this line, I owe my soul to the company store. September 11, 2009, Crystal Lee Sutton, the real-life Norma Ray of the movies, died at age 68. She worked at a J.P. Stevens textile plant in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, when low pay and poor working conditions led her to become a union activist. So on September 11, 2001, more than 3,000 people died when suicide hijackers crashed planes into the World Trade Center towers, the Pentagon, and a Pennsylvania field. Among the dead in New York were union members, of course, including New York City firefighters on the scene when the towers fell. Orlando and Phyllis Rodriguez spoke out against using September 11, 2001 as a pretext for war. The Rodriguez's son, Gregory, died during the attack. Gregory was 31 years old and working on the 103rd floor of One World Trade Center. The Rodriguez family sent an open letter to the New York Times and other papers after the attack, writing in part, <clears throat> quote, we see, our, we see our hurt and anger reflected among everybody we meet. We cannot pay attention to the daily flow of news about this disaster but we read enough of the news to sense that our government is heading in the direction of violent revenge, with the prospect of sons, daughters, parents, friends in distant lands, dying, suffering, and nursing further grievances against us. It is not the way to go. It will not avenge our son's death, not in our son's name. Our son died a victim of an inhuman ideology. Our actions should not serve the same purpose. Let us grieve. Let us reflect and pray. Let us think about a rational response that brings real peace and justice to our world. But let us not, as a nation, add to the inhumanity of our times. Really appreciated that open letter from those parents. And, you know, me personally, I distinctly remember where I was when the 9-11 attacks happened. I was actually in social studies class in middle school, and it was unbelievable and I also distinctly remember the nationalistic rage afterwards and how common it was to hear people casually, jokingly, not so jokingly, talk about bombing the entire Middle East into oblivion. I remember how so-called small government types were eager to hand over massive surveillance and police state powers, which we still live under more than 20 years after this attack. At least as I remember it, there, there was a bloodlust in the country. It was a few years later when I got a little older, when I started questioning some of these dominant narratives, particularly as we saw the catastrophe that was Hurricane Katrina and the exposure of the lies and failures of the Iraq War. As I got a little bit older, I studied more and more history, 
I was particularly interested in foreign policy because I was trying to answer the question on so many people's minds, how could this happen and why? We were told that entire populations abroad hated America because of our freedoms. Well, I figured that there was more to it, which led me to learn more and more about the impact of American imperialism in the military-industrial complex over the decades, which leads me to my next couple entries for September 11th, which do touch on the bloody role of U.S. empire in Latin America. On September 11, 1990, anthropologist Myrna Mack Chang was murdered in Guatemala by the U.S.-backed military due to her outspoken criticism of the Guatemala government's treatment of the indigenous Maya people. <clears throat> and on September 11, 1973, a U.S.-backed coup in Chile led by General Augusto Pinochet ousted and killed Chile's democratically elected president, Salvador Allende. What followed was a brutal 17-year dictatorship by Pinochet, with American backing. Moving on to September 12, 1918, Eugene V. Debs, labor leader and socialist, was sentenced to 10 years for opposing World War I. And of course, while in jail, Debs received a million votes for president. Also on September 12, but 1958, the governor in Arkansas closed all Little Rock, Arkansas public high schools for one year rather than allow integration to continue, which left 3,665 black and white students without access to public education. During this year, 93% of white students and 50% of the black students gained access to some form of alternative schooling. On September 13, 1858, 18-year-old John Price was arrested by a federal marshal in Oberlin, Ohio, under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Price had escaped from a Kentucky enslaver a few years before. As soon as Oberlin residents heard of the marshal's actions, a group of them went to Wellington where Price was being held. After peaceful negotiations failed, they stormed the hotel, found Price, and took him to freedom in Canada, in what became known as the Oberlin-Wellington Rescue. While it's not known what happened to Price after he arrived in Canada, I find that to be a fascinating story. 37 of the abolitionists involved in the rescue were arrested for violating the Fugitive Slave Law. On September 14, 1929, Gastonia, North Carolina textile mill striker and songwriter Ella Mae Wiggins, aged 29, a mother of five, was killed when local vigilantes and thugs forced her pickup truck in which she was riding off the road and began shooting. September 14, 1959, Congress passed the Landrum-Griffin Act. The law expanded many of the anti-labor provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act, increasing union reporting requirements and restricting secondary boycotting and picketing. On September 14, 1941, Four marches from different parts of the city of Washington, D.C. got underway, involving an estimated 2,000 total participants. Each march was dedicated to one of the four recent African-American victims of police brutality. Signs carried by protesters included, Old Jim Crow has got to go, protect our civil rights, and police brutality is a disgrace to the nation's capital. 
A hearse and an undertaker's automobile carried signs in memory of persons shot in recent months by the police. This protest followed years of organizing against police brutality in Washington, D.C., and I thought that was really worth noting because people will act like protesting police brutality is a brand new thing or an example of what they call wokeness. People didn't start protesting police violence in 2020 or 2014. Unfortunately, everyday people in this country have had to protest police violence for a very long time because we've encountered police violence for a very long time, particularly black folks in marginalized communities. Hispanic Heritage Month begins on September 15th, the anniversary of independence for five Latin American countries, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. The Jewish celebration of the New Year, Rosh Hashanah, begins on the evening of Friday, September 15th, and ends at sundown on Sunday, September 17th this year. Also, September 15, 1845, some 5,000 female cotton workers in and around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, strike for a 10-hour day. The next day, male trade unionists became the very first male auxiliary when they gathered to protect the women from police attacks. Unfortunately, the strike ultimately failed. Also, September 15, 1970, more than 350,000 members of the United Auto Workers began what is to become a 69-day strike against General Motors. Fast forward to 2019, when 48,000 UAW members walk out at some 50 General Motors plants in what would become a 40-day strike, demanding increased job security, a pathway for temporary workers to become permanent, better pay, and retention of health care benefits. And obviously, given the issues that UAW is dealing with right now as their contract expires literally in a few days from this recording, um, clearly the issues were not resolved in the 2019 strike. And sending all of our solidarity with the UAW brothers and sisters as they take on the big three. Finally, 60 years ago on September 15, 1963, was the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. We will never forget Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Addie Mae Collins, all 14 years old, and 11-year-old Denise McNair. The four girls were murdered in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in an act of terrorism by a Klan-related group on September 15, 63, in Birmingham, Alabama. It came just a few days after the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Sarah Collins Rudolph was severely injured in the bombing, and two boys were murdered that same day in Birmingham, 16-year-old Johnny Robinson and 13-year-old Virgil Ware. Angela Davis, professor emerita at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, grew up in Birmingham, and she spoke at a 50th anniversary event in Oakland. Here is a short excerpt from her talk. Quote, remembering and paying tribute to this tragic event, let us not pretend that we are simultaneously celebrating the end of racist violence and the triumph of democracy. Let us also not labor under the illusion that this church bombing was an anomaly. We know that Robert Chambliss, who was eventually convicted of carrying out the bombing, along with three others, we know that he had been responsible for bombing black homes and churches over so many years. As a matter of fact, during the eight years prior to the church bombing, there had been 21 bombings in Birmingham. This man's nickname was Dynamite Bob. 
He was known in white communities, you know, talking about terrorism. And I want to emphasize the importance of understanding how much terrorism, racist terrorism, has shaped the history of this country. And there are lessons we need to learn from that. A broader way of thinking about justice in the case of the Birmingham bombing would require, first of all, a fuller understanding of the event and its historical context, and would require us to ask questions about the, the way our lives today bear the historical imprint of that era. Just as sediments of slavery are still with us, most dramatically represented by the country's incarceration practices and by the racism of the death penalty, the vestiges of an era where racist violence was the norm and was condoned by officials from local governments to Washington are still haunting us. Moving forward to September 16th, on this day, Mexicans celebrate Mexico's independence from Spain. 1945, more than 43,000 oil workers went on strike in 20 states, part of the post-war strike wave. September 16, 2004, was a player lockout by the National Hockey League, leading to the cancellation of what would have been the league's 88th season. The lockout, over owner demands that salaries be capped, lasted 310 days. Uh, regular listeners to the Valley Labor Report may recall we've talked about former Labor Secretary Marty Walsh left his Department of Labor post to go be the head of the National Hockey League Players Association. Just a little interesting fact there. September 16, 2004, the Farm Labor Organizing Committee won a signed contract with the Mount Olive Pickle Company and Growers, ending a five-year boycott. The agreement marked the first time an American labor union represented guest workers. And September 16, 2009 was when Richard Trumka was elected president of the AFL-CIO at the Federation's convention in Pittsburgh. He had served as the secretary-treasurer under pre predecessor John Sweeney from 1995 to 2009, and prior to that was president of the United Mine Workers for 13 years. On September 17, 1887, the U.S. Constitution was signed, and I reckon we can all be the judge of how that's turned out over the past 236 years. September 17, 1868, at a New York convention of the National Labor, Con National Labor Congress, Susan B. Anthony called for the formation of a working women's association. As a delegate to the Congress, she persuaded the Committee on Female Labor to call for votes for women and equal pay for equal work, but male delegates deleted the reference to the vote. September 17, 1934, Southern employers meeting in Greenville, North Carolina, readied their big counteroffensive to break the textile labor strikes that have hit the eastern seaboard. Ultimately, they deployed 10,000 National Guardsmen and 15,000 deputies, but failed to drive hundreds of thousands of strikers back to work. On September 17, 1989, a total of 98 United Mine Workers of America members and a minister occupied the Pittston Coal Company's Moss 3 preparation plant in Carbon, Virginia, beginning a year-long strike. Among other issues, management demands for drastic limitations in health and pension benefits for the retired and disabled miners and their dependents and beneficiaries. Finally, on 9-17, in 2011, the Occupy Wall Street movement is launched with an anti-Wall Street march and demonstration that ended up as a two-month encampment in Manhattan's Zuccotti Park. The event led to protests and movements around the world with their focus on economic inequality, 
corruption, greed, and the influence on government of moneyed interest. Their slogan, we are the 99%. And I think there's a lot you could say about the impacts or lack of impacts of Occupy Wall Street, but uh, I know for me personally, I was certainly inspired uh, to see folks standing up and speaking about economic and wealth inequality. Uh, and I do think it, it certainly inspired many others uh, of my generation, at least. On September 18, 1978, the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, TDU, is formally founded at an Ohio convention during a period of serious corruption in the union. Two years earlier, at an IBT convention in Las Vegas, a union reform leader who unsuccessfully called for direct election of officers and a limit on officer salaries had been beaten by thugs. September 18, 1999, a 20-month illegal lockout of 2,900 steelworkers at Kaiser Aluminum Plants in three states ends when an arbitrator ordered a new contract. Kaiser was forced to fire scabs and fork over tens of millions of dollars in back pay to union members. September 19th, the Camilla Massacre took place on September 19, 1868, near Albany, Georgia. The massacre was one of many acts of repression carried out by white supremacists during the Reconstruction era to roll back advances in civic, economic, and human rights for African Americans. From the Georgia Encyclopedia, in early September, the Georgia State Legislature expelled 28 newly elected members because they were at least one-eighth black. Among those removed was Southwest Georgia Representative Philip Joyner. On September 19th, Joyner, along with Northerners Francis F. Putney and William B. Pierce, led a 25-mile march of several hundred blacks and a few whites from Albany to Camilla, the Mitchell County seat, to attend a Republican political rally. Mitchell County whites, however, were determined that no Republican rally would occur. As marchers entered the courthouse square in Camilla, whites stationed in various storefronts opened fire, killing about a dozen and wounding possibly 30 others. As marchers returned to Albany, hostile whites assaulted them for several miles. It's my understanding that this is an event that is not very well documented or at least very well remembered in Georgia state history. Also on September 19, 1981, between 400 and 500,000 Unionists converged on Washington, D.C. for a Solidarity Day march and rally protesting Republican policies. And a couple of things that stood out there to me is that it's easy in retrospect to think that, you know, the whole country in 1981 was totally on board with Reaganism, but it wasn't. But the other flip side to that is you know, nearly half a million union members converged on Washington, D.C. for this solidarity march and rally. But clearly, um, we got our butts kicked, and that's been the case ever since, right? So uh, there are real limits to what that Solidarity Day march and rally accomplished. On September 20th, 1878, Upton Sinclair, socialist and author of The Jungle, which was also published on this day in 1906, was born in Baltimore, Maryland. September 20, 1887, according to folklorist John Gerst, steel-driving man John Henry, born a slave, outperformed a steam hammer on this date at the Coosa Mountain Tunnel or the Oak Mountain Tunnel of the Columbus and Western Railway near Leeds, Alabama. 
Now, other researchers placed the contest near Talcott, West Virginia. Who knows? 1965, September 20th, the International Hog Carriers Building and Common Laborers Union of America changed their name to the Laborers International Union. Initiated in 1981, September 21st is the United Nations International Day of Peace, an annual commemoration aimed at encouraging all people to play a part in building a peace culture worldwide. Communities across the globe organize their own observances designed to bring people together for world peace. September 21st, 1896, a militia was sent to Leadville, Colorado to break a minor strike. Also on this date, in 1912, Mother Jones led a march of minor's children through the streets of Charleston, West Virginia. In 1982, the NFL Players Association members began what is to become a 57-day strike, their first regular season walkout ever. And September 21, 1991, members of five unions at the Frontier Hotel Casino in Las Vegas began what was to become the longest successful hotel strike in U.S. history. All 550 workers honored the picket line for the entirety of the six-year, four-month, 10-day fight against management's insistence on cutting wages and eliminating pensions. September 22, 1910, 18-year-old Hannah Shapiro leads a spontaneous walkout of 17 women at a Hart Schaffner and Marks garment factory in Chicago. It grows into a months-long mass strike involving 40,000 garment workers across the city, protesting 10-hour days, bullying bosses, and cuts in already low wages. Shout out to the kids. Way to go, young people. Uh, whether it's in 1910 or 2023, we know that uh, there are teenagers and 20-year-olds and, and, and young people across this country who are getting involved in the labor movement. And please know that you have a place in this labor movement, and we need your strength and tenacity uh, and energy in this movement. September 22, 1919, Great Steel Strike began. 350,000 workers demanded union recognition. The AFL Iron and Steel Organizing Committee called off the strike, their goal unmet, 108 days later. Back to uh, Mingo County, West Virginia, September 22, 1922, martial law was finally rescinded after police, U.S. troops, and the hired goons finally quelled the coal miner's strike. September 22, 1934, United Textile Workers Strike Committee ordered strikers back to work after 22 days out, ending what was at that point the greatest single industrial conflict in the history of American organized labor. The strike involved some 400,000 workers in New England, the Mid-Atlantic states, and the South, including right here in Huntsville, Alabama. Same day, a year later, 1935, some 400,000 coal miners strike for higher wages in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Illinois, and Ohio. Same day, 1953, the AFL expelled the International Longshoremen's Association for racketeering. Six years later, the AFL-CIO accepted them back into the House of Labor. September 22, 2005, OSHA reached its largest ever settlement agreement. $21 million with BP Products North America following an explosion at BP's Texas City, Texas plant earlier in the year that killed 15 and injured 170. And finally, on September 22nd in 2006, 
11 Domino's employees in Pensacola, Florida, formed the nation's first union of pizza delivery drivers. And I would be really fascinated to know whatever happened to those 11 folks. What happened to that driver's union? Uh, that was 2006. And last I checked, Domino's drivers desperately need to organize now in 2023. Uh, so perhaps there are listeners out there who have some insight on that. Um, but if not, we as a movement probably need to figure out what happened there. On September 23rd, 1868, the Working Men's Advocate of Chicago published the first installment of The Other Side by Martin A. Ferran, president of the Coopers International Union, believed to be the first novel by a trade union leader and some say the first working class novel ever published in the U.S., also on September 23, 1886, a coalition of Knights of Labor and trade unionists in Chicago launched the United Labor Party, calling for an eight-hour day, government ownership of telegraph and telephone companies, and monetary and land reform. The party elected seven state assemblymen and one senator. September 23, 1968, the Young Lords were founded. The Young Lords were established in Chicago, led by a street activist named Chacha Jimenez, uh, who organized the group to fight local gentrification, police brutality, and racism. He pioneered the use of the Lord's signature purple berets and semi-military code of conduct. It was only when the New York chapter was founded a year later that the group began to take off and the young Lords burst into national prominence, adding their unique spin to the, to the moment's revolutionary politics. Uh, they were, you know, affiliated to various, various degrees with the Black Panthers, the Weather Underground, and Students for a Democratic Society. And they were also part of the Rainbow Coalition of those groups, which sought to unite Black, Latino, Native, and white working class radicals in the era. September 23, 1996, a 42-month strike by steel workers at Bayou Steel in Louisiana ends in a new contract and the ousting of scabs. You love to see that, folks. 2002, California Governor Gray Davis, sort of a blast from the past there, he signed legislation making the state the first to offer workers paid family leave. On September 24, 1918, the Wobblies... IWW was declared illegal by Canada. Also on September 24th, but in 1968, 14 people removed 10,000 draft files from the Milwaukee Draft Board and burned them with homemade napalm. They were arrested and went to trial. Father James Groppy co-chaired the Milwaukee 14 Defense Com Committee. Most served at least a year of jail time. September 25th, 1891, two African-American sharecroppers are killed during an ultimately unsuccessful cotton picker strike in Lee County, Arkansas, which I mentioned earlier. By the time the strike had been suppressed, 15 African-Americans had died and another six had been in prison. A white plantation manager was killed as well. On September 26, 1903, the old 97, a Southern Railway train officially known as the Fast Mail, derailed near Danville, Virginia, killing engineer Joseph Steve Brody and 10 other railroad and postal workers. Many believe Brody had been ordered to speed up to make up for lost time. The wreck of the old 97 inspired balladeers. 
1924 recording is sometimes cited as the first million-selling country music record. It's worth noting, I, I see themes in these labor history segments that I do. In one of those recurring themes is the way our railroad workers are treated. Um, and whether it was last year and the rail workers organizing for safety on the job, organizing around their rights for paid leave, for predictable scheduling. Um, and of course, they were met by federal interference. The Biden administration, along with Congress, interfered and prevented their right to strike. And that is also a recurring theme where the federal government intervenes and squashes organizing among the rail workers. September 26, 1908, the first production model Ford, the per, first production Ford Model T leaves in Detroit, Michigan. It was the first car ever manufactured on an assembly line with interchangeable parts. The auto, the auto industry was to become a major U.S. employer at one point, accounting for as many as one of, one of every eight to ten jobs in the country. On September 27, 1893, the International Typographical Union renewed a strike against the Los Angeles Times. A boycott ran intermittently from 1896 to 1908. A local anti-Times committee in 1903 persuaded William Randolph Hearst to start a rival paper, the Los Angeles Examiner. Although the ITU kept the fight into the 1920s, the Times remained totally non-union until 2009 when the GCIU, now the Graphic Communications Conference of the Teamsters organized the press room. September 27, 1909, International Ladies Garment Workers Union began their strike against the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. This would become the uprising of the 20,000, resulting in 339 of 352 struck firms, but not Triangle, signing agreements with the union. The Triangle fire that killed 146 would occur less than two years later. So on September 26th or 27th, I saw conflicting dates uh, back in 1909, local 25 of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union declared a strike against the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. One of the organizers was Russian immigrant Pauline Newman, who began working at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1903 when she was only 13 years old. Finding that many of her co-workers could not read, she organized an evening study group where they also discussed labor issues and politics. Newman was active in the Shirtwaist Strike and the Women's Trade Union League. She became a union organizer for the ILGWU and director of the ILGWU's health center. By November, the strike spread to other Shirtwaist manufacturers. On November 22nd, Clara Limlick, a 23-year-old Ukrainian immigrant, helped spark the strike with the following words. Quote, I have listened to all the speakers, and I have no further patience for talk. I am a working girl, one of those striking against intolerable conditions. I am tired of listening to speakers who talk in generalities. What we are here for is to decide whether or not to strike. I make a motion that we go out in a general strike. In Claire Limlick and the Uprising of the 20,000 at PBS, they explain that, quote, in the years following the Triangle Fire, Limlick continued the fight for workers' rights. She became an active member of the Communist Party and petitioned for women's suffrage. 
Because of her political leanings, Limlick eventually broke ties with the ILGWU and many of her colleagues, including activist Pauline Newman, who stated, quote, her politics were not my cup of tea. We no longer had anything in common except the memory of the strike and our participation in it. In 1913, Limlick married Joe Shavelson, a printer union activist, and together they had three children. She continued to speak on behalf of several causes, and she led a nationwide food strike in response to inflated prices during World War I. Throughout the 1940s, Limlick served on the American Committee to Survey Trade Union Conditions in Europe and became an organizer for the American League Against War and Fascism. Due to her earlier involvement in the Communist Party, Limlick and her family were monitored by the House of Un-American Activities Committee throughout the 1950s. Limlick officially retired from the ILGWU in 1954. She died on July 12, 1982. I found her story very fascinating. One of those, you know, labor heroes that you often don't hear about. Back in 2002, same day, 29 West Coast ports were, had a lockout of 10,500 workers in response to what management said was a worker slowdown amid negotiations on a new contract. Wow, this sounds really familiar. I think we've had some similar issues at the uh, docks and the ports recently. The ports were closed for 10 days, and they reopened when President George W. Bush invoked the Taft-Hartley Act. On September 28, 1864, the International Workingmen's Association is founded in London. It was an international organization trying to unite a variety of different left-wing, socialist, communist, and anarchist political groups and unions. It functioned for about 12 years, growing to a membership declared to be 8 million, before being disbanded at its Philadelphia conference in 1876, a victim of infighting brought on by the wide variety of members' philosophies. On September 28, 1868, one of the worst outbreaks of violence during Reconstruction took place in Opelousas, Louisiana. The event started with three local members of the KKK-like Knights of the White Camellia beating teacher and newspaper editor Emerson Bentley while he was teaching class because he had promoted voter registration and education for all. After some African Americans came to his rescue, armed white mobs roamed the countryside in a murderous rampage, killing more than 150 people, mostly African Americans. On September 29, 2010, tens of thousands of protesters take to the streets of Europe, striking against government austerity measures. Workers in more than a dozen countries participated, including Spain, Belgium, Greece, Portugal, Ireland, Slovenia, and Lithuania protesting job losses, retirement deferments, pension reductions, and cuts to schools, hospitals, and welfare services. On September 30, 1892, a total of 29 strike leaders are charged with treason, plotting to, quote, incite insurrection, rebellion, and war against the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. For daring to strike the Carnegie Steel Company in Homestead, Pennsylvania, Thankfully, jurors refused to convict them. September 30th, 1899, 70-year-old Mother Jones recognizes... 70-year-old Mother Jones organizes the wives of striking miners in Arnott, Pennsylvania, to descend on the mine with brooms, pop, mops, and clanging pots and pans. They frighten away the mules and the, their scab drivers. The miners eventually won their strike. 
1915, September 30th, railroad shopmen in 28 cities strike the Illinois Central Railroad and the Harriman Lines for an eight-hour day, improved conditions and union recognition. But, as I uh, alluded to earlier, railroad officials obtain sweeping injunctions against them and rely on police and armed guards to protect strike breakers. On September 30th, 1919, Black farmers met in Elaine, Arkansas with Robert L. Hill to establish the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America to fight for better pay and higher cotton prices. A white mob shot at them and the farmers returned fire in self-defense. News of the confrontation spread and the massacre ensued, leaving more than 100, if not much more, African Americans dead. 67 were indicted for inciting violence, and 12 black sharecroppers were sentenced to death, the Elaine 12. Not only were African Americans massacred, they were also blamed for the event and charged with murder. The Elaine massacre occurred at the end of Red Summer of 1919, a series of brutal attacks on African Americans in more than three dozen cities, including Chicago, Washington, D.C., Norfolk, Virginia, Knoxville, Tennessee, and more cities. Ida B. Wells produced a booklet called The Elaine Riot, which you can actually find online at archive.org. Finally, on September 30, 1962, Cesar Chavez with Dolores Horta co-founded the National Farm Workers Association, which later is to become known as the United Farm Workers of America. And finally, not to end on a sober note, a somber note, but I did feel it was important to say that September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. It's a time to remember those affected by suicide, to raise awareness, and to focus efforts on directing treatment to those who need it most. Suicide is a major public health concern and a leading cause of death in the U.S. There's plenty to talk about there in the context of our labor movement. More and more folks in the movement are talking about the prevalence of suicide, substance abuse, and mental illness within our membership and the broader working class. It's a crisis that requires action from many directions. According to CDC data from a couple years ago, the construction industry ranked near the top of the list of industrial sectors when it comes to deaths by suicide, with iron workers and millwrights ranking as number one and number two per 100,000 males, respectively. So it's no surprise that while spending time with the Iron Workers Union, I've heard them discuss how they can take action as a union to address this crisis. I would encourage all of our unions to prioritize this issue, to research this issue, and to advocate around this issue at all levels, in our workplace contracts to our legislative lobbying. We have to secure more resources in our collective bargaining to help our members. We have to lead the fight for healthcare for all, including mental health and drug treatment. And if you're listening to my voice, please know that we need you. We, we the people need you. We need you to be the best you can be because you matter. We face so many challenges as working people in 2023 it's going to take all of us doing what we can so that we can all win what we need. We all have a role to play in making history and bending our future towards justice. So let's please look out for one another. If you or someone you know needs to talk to someone, you can always call or text 988 at any time of day.
And I want to wrap up by just shouting out a couple uh, trainings available with Labor Notes. Uh, today was a history episode. We'll get back to some training later this month. Uh, but if you need some training, Labor Notes provides great training online and in person. Uh, they do have Dealing with Difficult Supervisors is their stewards workshop on September 26th. Uh, for those of you in the Atlanta area or close enough to drive to Atlanta, they have Atlanta Secrets of a Successful Organizer on September 16th. So definitely check that out if you're in the area. Uh, speaking of that workshop, the Secrets of a Successful Organizer workshop series will be online September 14th, 21st, and 28th. They do ask that you attend all three sessions, but uh, I'm here to tell you folks, if you've never attended, you really, really should. And that's it for Shop Talk. I hope it was worth your time, and I really appreciate everyone listening. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your network of folks. And of course, make sure that you're plugged into our work. Like and subscribe and follow and all that good stuff. Just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working class media collective dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only union talk radio show every Saturday morning with the first half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in the Huntsville listening area. The entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and podcast, and portions of the program are replayed on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. We encourage you to check out our website, tvlr.fm, where we publish articles, news, and commentary. Uh, check out Jacob's article about the Scottsboro, uh, Scottsboro Starbucks strike that happened a couple weekends ago. Definitely check that out while you're there. And while you're there, you can sign up for our email newsletter, and you can check out our store and our cool merch at tvlr.fm slash store. Uh, when you're in the store, you'll notice tickets are still available for our September 17th live show at Shenanigans Comedy Theater. So if you are anywhere near the Huntsville area, and you don't have plans that night, that Sunday evening. You should totally come out. Uh, support the show. Check out local comedy. Uh, it's going to be a great panel discussion. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be lighthearted. Uh, we're going to talk about labor and organizing in the South, but also have some fun with it. Uh, and there will be uh, concessions. So definitely check that out. Uh, and finally just want to say that we do rely on donations and sponsorships to put out all of this free content. So really appreciate the unions and other organizations that sponsor ads on our Saturday show, as well as Labor Notes for sponsoring Shop Talk. If you are interested in being a sponsor, please hit us up. But our biggest single source of contributions comes from listener donations, regular folks like you. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring contribution at tvlr.fm slash donate. So if you share our mission to grow the Southern labor movement, if you share our belief in the power of solidarity and collective organization, if you want media that is for working people by working people, please consider becoming a recurring donor at tvlr.fm slash donate. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all. <laughs>